The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. You can have a healthy, sustainable withdrawal rate plan, pay little to no taxes, and live a long time. Problem is, you may not be able to have all three at once. Hey everybody, welcome to Retire With Style. I'm Alex, and I'm here with my trusted companion, Wade. Foul. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) we're here to talk about what we thought was... Yeah, right? Thank you. (laughs) We're here to talk about what we thought was going to be a two-parter on on why the 4% rule may be too high ended up being a three-parter, today being the third part. Uh, Wade, but before we get going, any interesting stories to uh, satisfy our audience members that love our personal anecdotes? Well, yeah, it was that I was, I've been listening to our past uh, episodes and realized in the first one of these, we thought it was going to be a four episode series to get through reasons why the 4% rule might be too high and too low. This is the third episode in the series and we're still not to the halfway point yet. So it's <laughs> four is going to be an under uh, estimate of how many episodes we need. Well, I think so it's that, too late to warn them was... on that one. Wait, the, the problem is you, you just you just know too much, big guy. You just know too much. <laughs> a... Yeah, we think a topic is going to take five minutes to talk about and then it ends up somehow taking 20 minutes or more. So we're going to keep pushing forward with it, though, and, and make sure we do. Give the adequate uh, discussion necessary for these topics. Perfect. I don't know if that's what you're looking for with small talk or not. Well, I don't know. Who knows, right? But it's just just something to to, to set up. Uh, here we go. Uh, so we're ended today with a couple of points, but just to kind of do a quick review, and you can you can obviously see the previous here listen to the previous episodes. One of the reasons, you know, the reasons we've been pointing out the four percent rule may be too high so far. Either the first point has to do with your allocation and how sometimes, you know, the risk aversion plays into that. You, you, you know, for this to work, part of it is the allocation ranges are between 35% equity to 80% equity. And, and folks are, some folks, when you get older in age, are, are maybe hesitant to do a 50% stock plus allocation, especially, you know, we want to make these episodes timely and evergreen at the same time, which is difficult, but you know, we, we, we've just seen extreme market volatility, which can easily have been given retirees pause for concern regarding their allocation. But uh, the reality is, is one of the assumptions for the 4% rule is to maintain a, a fairly healthy stock allocation that is probably more so than what uh, target date funds that institutions create would would be amenable to. And obviously, they're getting to different points those target date funds are just taking into consideration your your age and using that to to create an allocation whereas the a sustainable withdrawal rate is taking a different tact and hence you know they really you know it's this probability based optionality component where there's this faith in the markets to over the long term or over some reasonable time period create a positive rate of return that can sustain the distribution 
The next one was U.S. historical data. A lot of this is just based on U.S. historical data, and that's ultimately limited. Wade cut his teeth, frankly, looking at the international data set. And Italy won the prize for being the lowest sustainable withdrawal rate. What, what was it, uh, Wade? No, it, Italy had the lowest success rate for the 4% rule. Go. Japan sorry, had sorry, the lowest the wrong withdrawal rate, although I don't know if we specifically mentioned that in the episode. <laughs> but it was 0.1%, and that was due to the hyperinflation and everything that went on during the World War II period in Japan. There you go. And and, and you, you expanded upon its implications with regards to World War II, or did we not get into that? Yeah, yeah, we got into all that, and we probably don't want to make this review too lengthy, right, or else right, we have right. a whole episode just reviewing every yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next so one you was can uh, look yeah, back yeah. two episodes ago for those topics. So we have the you know the allocation historical data is actually quite limited. The next point was retiree investors in general tend to underperform market index returns, and as much as you don't think that's going to be you, odds are it will likely be you. And myself included, and Wade, we're not we're not above it, but it's just it's just what the data shows. Uh, the next one, which was what we discussed last time, is when you focus on investing for income and you back into a dividend yield from a stock or some sort of yield from a from a bond, you may not be doing that. That's not the optimal way to do it. You should be thinking about the portfolio as a whole and creating your own yield from just selling selling assets as opposed to trying to map it to a to a dividend because a, a lot of things can go wrong when you do that. And then we discussed that in detail in the last episode. So those are four so far. Today we're going to talk quickly, not quickly, but we're going to discuss three more, which is taxes, uh, how mm-hmm. we kind of want a margin of safety. We don't want to be at zero in our on our expected death date because that's even though that's really, really good timing, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a tough pill to swallow. And the investment horizon may actually be much longer than 30 years. Uh, Wade, you want to take us through the taxes and uh, unpack that? Yeah, absolutely. And and so the simple issue with taxes is the 4% rule doesn't incorporate them. It doesn't include any taxes. And of course, in the real world, there are taxes. And if you're thinking about, well, the 4% rule seems like a reasonable idea because I want to have consistent spending through an, throughout a retirement, by that concept, you probably mean you want consistent after-tax spending. If the tax bill is bouncing around, but your overall spending is constant, that means this, the amount you get to spend net of taxes is going to be bouncing all around. And, and the 4% rule just leaves taxes out of the equation. So it, if everything was in a Roth account, you can, you're, you're okay there. You're covered because <laughs> you don't have the Roth distributions going into your adjusted gross income. But for any money in a taxable account or a tax-deferred account, you have to deal with the fact that taxes are going to be paid, and that's going to impact spending. And now it is hard to talk about. Everyone has a different tax situation, so it really is hard to generalize. But one thing I tried to do recently to help provide some guidance around that was just a, a very simple example of... We'll look at all the assets are held in either a brokerage account, uh, an IRA, or a Roth IRA, and then looking at different asset levels, $1 million, $2 million, $3 million, also having a social security benefit, but then beyond that, no other financial considerations, and looking at what do taxes do to the sustainable withdrawal rate. 
And I hope that that can just help provide some sort of insight or guidance around the impact of taxes. And wait, just since just to level set for all the entirety of our audience, although many would know the implications when you say brokerage IRA and Roth IRA, or you know, or even a four hundred one k, if you will. Uh, effectively, there's three classifications for these accounts. A normal like brokerage account usually is a taxable account. Okay, so you're going to be paying taxes on an ongoing basis on, on gains. An IRA and of, dividends and interest. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. And dividends and everything that comes out of that. An IRA, a 401k, a four or three, a 403b, those kind of uh, employee accounts. Those are tax deferred accounts. You pay taxes on. You're, you're going. Wait. You're 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 sort of not paying taxes when you're putting it in, but when you take it out, you're going to pay taxes on it from an income standpoint. Okay, mm-hmm. and yeah, then, you get the tax deduction when you contribute, but then everything comes out as ordinary income, and you'll be impacted by required minimum distributions starting at age seventy-two. And it, just because we brought it up, required minimum distributions. What's a quick definition for that one, Wade? Well, that is the uh, the IRS is letting you defer your taxes, but they don't want you to defer it forever. And so they've created rules that eventually you do have to take the money out. You don't necessarily have to spend it, but you do have to pay taxes on it. And then if you're not spending it, you could then reinvest it into a taxable account. And I said that RMDs uh, start at age 72. There is currently legislation that may pass before the end of 2022 that's going to make that number eventually obsolete. But <laughs> as of the recording, uh, age 72 is when RMDs start. Okay. And then the Roth, we have a, it's known as a tax exempt fund. Why is that tax exempt, Wade? Mm-hmm. So you don't have to, or you do pay taxes on the contributions going in. You don't get to deduct that from your current year taxes. But then all the growth and all the distributions, assuming it's a qualified distribution, which requires meeting some basic rules, but it then all comes out tax-free. Any any qualified distribution from your Roth account uh, does not go into your adjusted gross income. So it doesn't impact taxes, well, well, ordinary income taxes or Social Security taxation of benefits or the Medicare surcharges. And some of these top, like we're introducing the idea of taxes right now, but we can later in the series have an entire conversation around tax planning and what all this stuff is in more detail. We're sort of introducing some of these concepts at this point. Yeah, we're doing it right now for definition as as we get into it. We want to make sure that when we say a brokerage account, that's hand in hand with a taxable account. When we say an IRA account or even a, a 401k rollover or whatnot, that goes hand in hand with tax deferred. And Roth IRA, those are tax-exempt accounts. And there's a whole literature behind the ordering of these and so forth. But for the purposes of this podcast, it's just to indicate that, you know, taxes take a bite. <laughs> and we're just going to yeah, show you Yeah, and in the example that, that I'll is. talk about now, the, the ordering, the whole what's a tax-efficient distribution strategy isn't relevant because I'm making a simple example where you only have money in one kind of account. So you don't have to worry about, well, when do I take from the tax-deferred account? When do I take from the taxable account and so forth? But we'll have an entire uh, story arc (laughs) on that at some point in the future. Okay. I feel like this is like the Avengers. We're kind of introducing characters, coming back, and and, and so forth. The retirement income universe. (laughs) Exactly. You want to fire away? Right. There's a lot of interconnecting things that go on here. And so you do have to find, well, what's the best path to work your way through all this? 
but yeah, um, so if the money is in a Roth account and that's all you have, Roth assets and a Social Security benefit, unless your Social Security benefit is high enough that the uh, formula used to calculate taxes on it ends up leading to more than the standard deduction, which is kind of unlikely, uh, you're not going to have to pay any taxes in retirement in that scenario with just Roth account assets and a Social Security benefit. So you still, if if you believe in the 4% rule, uh, it's still 4% because there is no tax consideration with money held in a Roth. And and that's true for any level of assets. Now, there could be estate taxes at some point, but uh, there's not going to be any income taxes. And so a, a set of assumptions that would lead the 4% rule to work in a no-tax world uh, would also work in a Roth if all the money was in a Roth. Okay. What happens if a million dollars is in a brokerage account as opposed to a Roth account? As opposed yeah, so to 40000 what, what are we looking at? Yeah, it's going to lead to fluctuating taxes over time. And it's not going to be as drastic as a tax-deferred account. But indeed, you can start to anticipate what's the sustainable level of inflation-adjusted spending I could use net of tax to be able to also have enough assets to pay all my tax bills. And this is also assuming we're in a no-state income tax state. So it is just federal income taxes. If you had a million dollars in a brokerage account, in in this scenario, it was $42,000 coming from Social Security annually, uh, your 4% rule would be, you'd you'd have to spend about 3% less. I don't mean three percentage points there, but (laughs) if the 4% rule worked without taxes, it would be a 3.88% withdrawal rate with taxes. And so spending would be reduced by 3% to account for taxes. What's your inflation uh, assumption on that? Just so... Mm-hmm. People kind of yeah, like, so this is actually that. going back past episodes. <laughs> Everything's interconnected. We talked about the PMT function. This is based on a PMT function where we have a we're assuming a two and a half percent inflation rate, and then a one point three one percent real return on assuming everything was invested in bonds, and that allows the four percent rule to work. It gives you thirty years of a uh, inflation adjusted four percent spending rate and of initial assets. Now, before everyone kind of gets back on their chair after hearing our assumption was two and a half percent, when they when when inflation right now is tracking, you know, significantly higher than that, you know, mm-hmm. at, at a certain point it gets to a steady rate. We're thinking about the entire life cycle of of the person. And so, you know, there there are some assumptions that just need to be made. And the idea is not to discredit this as, oh, but inflation is 8%. So forget this. It's it's really most more to see an apples-to-apples comparison with the different account types and how that they're affecting it. Yeah. Yeah. Markets do expect inflation to come back down, and that's still a kind of long-term projected average. But right, this is a simpler calculation. It's just if the 4% rule worked without taxes, what would taxes <laughs> do to the 4% rule? It's really all we're trying to yeah, understand. Yeah, keeping everything right else the same. You know, so proportionally, you'd see a similar thing. And so, yeah, the and million we, dollars. Well, we might as well continue with the, the brokerage account first before we switch to tax deferred. So gotcha. if you had a million dollars in the brokerage account, you'd have to reduce spending by 3% to account for your taxes. $2 million in a brokerage account, spending would have to be reduced by 6.9% to account for taxes. And then $3 million in a brokerage account, spending would have to be reduced by 8% to account for taxes. And so in the context of the withdrawal rate, 4% would become a 3.68% withdrawal rate to account for taxes. 
Why is that? Why does it increase? And I just want to make it clear to everyone because, you know, we're, we're doing this with the benefit of seeing a chart. Why is it that the spending actually decreased and it's not proportionally the same thing with a million dollar account and a three million dollar account? Well, it's just the nature of the progressive tax system in the United States, where as really all the income we're assuming here is ordinary, like interest, bond interest. And as you have a more interest coming out of the account, part of that is getting pushed into higher tax brackets. And so that's increasing kind of the average tax rate you're paying over time. You're, you're, you're going to have a higher tax bill as that income goes up. And also it could be pushing more of the social security benefit to be taxable as well. And all kinds of, uh, when we get to the tax planning discussion later <laughs> in retire with style, the nonlinearities of the tax code is what creates all kinds of complications. And we're, we're seeing a little <laughs> taste of that in that these uh, tax changes are not linear. They're, they're not a straight line. It's, it's based on a whole lot of underlying factors interacting with each other. Yeah, and, and to even view it another way, just to because it's not all bad news. I mean, the more money you have, the more nominally you can take out, even though percentage it, it may be lower. So the million-dollar portfolio at a 4% in a taxable account, you're looking at $38,800. A $2 million account, 4%, et cetera, you're looking at $74,400. And a $3 million account, you're looking at $110,400. So nominally, obviously, it's more because, you know, 4% of 3 million, et cetera. But that being the case, as a percent of the initial withdrawal rate, it, it, it is lower. Mm -hmm. Then we can talk about the tax deferred. So this would be money in an IRA and a 401k and so forth. And the tax implications are a lot bigger. Right? And I hope kind of well, you, when we start talking about tax planning, you, you know, you'll see a lot out there about, of course, it's great to get the tax deduction. And certainly in high earning years or peak earning years, it probably does make a lot of sense to contribute to a tax deferred account. So you can get that immediate tax deduction when you're paying taxes at a higher marginal tax rate. But if you got too much assets in those types of an account, uh, that can really hit you in retirement because that is all coming out as ordinary income. Your entire uh, distribution is going into your tax bill, and, and that can have a bigger impact. Like we said with a million dollars, if it was a million dollars in a taxable brokerage account, you'd reduce spending by 3%. If you had a million dollars in an IRA, you'd actually have to reduce a spending by 14% to account for all the taxes that you'll have to pay in retirement. So that would take the 4% rule down to a 3.41% withdrawal rate to accommodate taxes on a million dollars in an IRA plus your social security benefit. The only thing I would say, Wade, and, and this is more for clarity for folks that are listening, and I'm kind of sensitive to them listening to us you know, effectively just spit out numbers. Uh, <laughs> conceptually, it, it's it's not that something is unfair. Remember, if you're putting it in a tax-deferred account, you're not getting taxed on the front end. And so if you're making mm -hmm. a certain salary that's at a high tax bracket, you're getting – you're able to nominally save more up front. And theoretically, that should be compounding at a faster rate than if you were to get taxed on it that year before contributing and then putting it in a Roth assuming that you qualify and the like. And so there, there's a break-even to this in terms of, hey, is it better to put it in a Roth right now or is it better to put it in a, a tax deferred? It, it depends on, right. on your on your tax rate. But it's, it's 
I just want to make it clear because sometimes I, I, I get the sense listening to folks who are reading questions where it's like there's this inequity of, of these accounts. And really what, what, what it, what's happening in an IRA is the government is kind of lending you the tax liability, the present-day tax liability, so you can just leave it invested. But as Wade said, they will ask for it back you know, into retirement. And, and many times, even though it, the number's here, a million here, a million there, you, you'd be like, why would I, you know, this tax deferred is, is no good. That's not necessarily the case because it's theoretically, it would be much easier to accumulate an account to get to a million dollars in a tax deferred account than you would in a tax exempt account, all things being equal, because more money is saved and compounding. Uh, Wade, do you want to maybe say that right. a little clearer just in case right. I, I yeah. flub something? I guess that's a good point. I don't want anyone to misunderstand the implications of this. The fact that you'd have to reduce spending by 3% for a taxable account and by 14% for a tax-deferred account doesn't mean you should have all your savings <laughs> in the taxable account. Like, in reality, people are going to diversify between the different types of accounts. And the whole kind of conversation is around, we know we have to pay taxes, we just want to work within the rules to pay uh, the least amount of taxes that we're required to pay, uh, not not illegally avoiding taxes, but just working within the system to pay the, the least amount of taxes. And then that involves, uh, if I'm, I think that this year my marginal tax rate on my last dollar of earnings is high, that might be a good time to put into the IRA because I believe in the future when I take it out of the IRA, I'll be able to pay a lower tax rate on that distribution. I, I want to figure out, I, I know I need to pay taxes. I just want to pay taxes at the lowest possible rates. And so that's the, the basic logic that goes behind the whole conversation around tax planning, both with where to save pre-retirement, but also where to spend from post-retirement. And the last point I, I would say, and, and this goes back to almost like the four L's, but it's almost like a pre-retirement four L's. Why, why would anyone put money in brokerage account? You know, since there's a tax deferral on one of them and there's there's a, a tax exempt on the other. Well, you may need to have access to cash. You just may need access to cash, you know, beforehand. And many times, uh, you know, the best way to do that is through a brokerage, a, a regular taxable account because life comes right, at because you. because of the penalties for early distributions before age 59 and a half. And plus, if you're a really diligent saver, you may... Yeah, uh, max exactly. out all your savings capacity. <laughs> the government provides these uh, tax advantages to incentivize retirement savings, but they put limits on it. So you, you can't just put as much as you want into the different types of tax advantage plans. That's why you may have to put something in a, a brokerage account as well, in addition to it being more liquid for you, you're not having to face early, the 10% early withdrawal penalty and so forth. And so, so then to, just to leave it here, like, Taxes do take a bite, you know, kind of comment. Roth IRA, let's just take a million-dollar portfolio because let's assume most of our listeners, you know, that's that's a reasonable amount. Although that could sound like a let-them-eat-cake statement, and, and I realize that. But for the purposes of here, you know, a million-dollar in a Roth IRA, spending is not reduced because you've already paid taxes effectively. And the government is incentivizing you to put it in a Roth because of that, and you take it out tax-free. Uh, brokerage account, the spending reduction effectively because you will be paying taxes is 3%. So 40000 goes to 38800 In a IRA tax deferred account, the spending reduction is 14%. So it's that much more because you've never paid taxes on this, you know, and so it was let to, it was allowed to invest and compound accordingly. 
But once you take it out, the spending reduction is reduced by 14%. So the 40000 goes to 34400 And so from that vantage point, it's, you know, taxes do account for what a sustainable withdrawal rate is within your portfolio. So if you're listening to this and you've been, you know, you've been, oh, 4%, you know what, I feel comfortable. I've heard all of this and et cetera, and I still feel comfortable with it. Know that. If you're in a tax-deferred account, and I have to think a lot of our readers, our, our listeners, have that simply because of 401ks and 403bs, it's, it's you know, that 4% is more, more closer to 3.4, you know, in addition to everything mm-hmm. else that we've discussed of why it, should, why it could be too high. Yeah. Yeah. And so with the IRA too, like, yeah, I never know what's a good kind of round number to use. $1 million makes all the accompanying math easier. But I know that is a very high number for some people. It's it's also a low number for other people. It's really hard to have a, a good kind of representative case study to talk about. Uh, just to finish out this example, if it was $2 million in an IRA, uh, the 4% rule, you'd have to reduce it by 16.5% to account for taxes, down to a 3.34% withdrawal rate. And if it was $3 million in an IRA, spending would have to be reduced by 19.2% to a 3.23% withdrawal rate to account for the taxes uh, in retirement. The good news is you have $3 million. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're still, well, if you didn't have to pay taxes, you'd be spending 100, well, you'd be able to take a distribution of $120,000 a year. Uh, Because of taxes, you only get to spend $97,020 a year out of your tax-deferred account, net of taxes. Let's take a moment to let the audience know that this show is sponsored by Retirement Researcher. You can learn more about Retirement Researcher at retirementresearcher.com and subscribe to our newsletter where you'll receive weekly actionable information for your retirement planning benefit. Retirement Researcher is an online community devoted to helping you create the retirement income plan geared towards your goals. Okay. So that's about all the, the tax talk I can handle in, in yeah, one podcast. Yeah, that's portion. introducing taxes. <laughs> we'll, uh, later on, we'll come back and talk more about tax planning for retirement. But uh, yeah, that's kind of introducing its implications for the 4% rule. And the, the idea, again, was the 4% rule ignores taxes. That's not a very realistic assumption. Uh, the reality is you're going to probably have to spend less after account, if you're talking about net of tax uh, sustainable spending numbers. Now, the, the next the next topic, Wade, I, I think is akin to And I do this on occasion where I'm driving and uh, all of a sudden the light goes on on my dashboard telling me that I only have a range of 40 miles left. And and the distance on ways is telling me that my next destination is 35 miles away. Right. Or it's telling <laughs> me it's 42 miles away. What do you do? What do you do? Do you fill it up? Or do you gun it? And I think that's 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 kind of a nice analogy for a retiree seek a safety margin. What do you think? Oh Wade? yeah, yeah. This scenario is great for understanding the whole concept of a safe <laughs> withdrawal rate. You're in a desert. You're uh, you're thinking about are you going to have enough gas to make it to the next gas station? That's the the four percent rule with your scenario there. 
the four percent rule just you're you're gonna you're okay you're not gonna worry about this you will make it to that gas station without any trouble you may turn off the air conditioning (laughs) (laughs) yeah you may have to go at 15 miles an hour because the faster you drive the lower your gas mileage but uh you're going to make it uh, somehow. <laughs> and that's not necessarily a realistic assumption. The, the 4% rule assumes you're playing this game of chicken with your portfolio that, all right, it looks like I'm in trouble. It looks like my portfolio is heading down to zero, but that's okay because I'll, I'll be dead before it hits zero. That's the assumption of the 4% rule. And whether or not that's an appropriate assumption, of course, is case by case. But but that is the assumption. I think it's a little and more. The alternative. It's, it's I'll be dead on the day I hit zero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that check to the undertaker will bounce. That's the the goal of retirement planning, right? The the first check to bounce would be the the one going to the funeral home. Uh, now, if you're not comfortable with that, it means you don't want to assume that you're willing to let the portfolio hit zero by the end of the planning horizon, which would mean you want to build in some sort of safety margin. And and we talked about that with the PMT function in earlier episodes. If you want a safety margin, you have to spend less because you have to preserve something for that safety margin. That's that's the story with it. I don't know. We could try to drag that out for another five minutes, but it's... Oh, we can. We can. <laughs> that's all there. <laughs> no, uh, the only thing I would say is, uh, yeah, it's kind of a simple concept, you know, and, and just keep that in mind. I mean, you're, you're following the 4% rule. You're kind of making that assumption. Now, by building in a safety margin, there, there's two ways, Wade, I, I would like to introduce. You can do it by, look, I have a super secret $100,000 account that I'm that I'm not touching. And that, that serves as the fire hydrant break glass in case of emergency, right? You have that kind of thing, which I would say you're just really mentally compartmentalizing your your assets because you technically then are taking less than 4%, but whatever, right? Uh, the other piece is if you're in the total return, remember, you have a strong probability base, you know, uh, tilt, but you're also viewing things with optionality, high level of optionality. And so if you're in the total return, another way to think about the safety margin is, hey, I'm just going to reduce my spending if things get tighter. So I can give myself that cushion. You can give yourself the cushion because you have some super secret account that you don't tell anyone about, you know, kind of thing, or you don't even look at it. You don't even want to look at it every few years because you don't want to know it's there. Or you're just comfortable with, you know, taking less because you're willing to, you, you have that optionality. You're willing to you're willing to move it around how much you take towards the end. Wait. Yeah. And also I think if you're probability based, you're also more willing to rely on the sense of, well, the 4% rule is supposed to be the worst case scenario. So maybe in the worst case scenario, I would hit zero, but in any other scenario, except the worst case scenario, I could have a lot of money left. And so that's my safety margin that, for all practical purposes, the 4% rule is going to provide a safety margin. And so I don't necessarily, therefore, need to build in an additional safety margin. I think that's really the reason why Michael Kitsis has said that yeah, the, that's your floor, you know, this right? idea of a floor and upside, the 4% rule is a floor. And because it will work in all but the quote-unquote worst-case scenario, you're going to have upside with it as well. That's not usually what is meant by a flooring approach. Flooring is much more of a safety first concept, but that's how a probability based thinker might try to bring that sort of concept to life within a probability based world. 
I, I don't personally subscribe to that, but I guess that's why I'm not a probability-based and optionality-based yeah, person. Based. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, we don't because of everything that we've spoken in the previous episodes. Those are assumptions that I'm not heroic enough to uh, subscribe to. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I am probability-based, but I'm probability-based commitment-oriented rather than Yeah, you give your floor another way, but you, you create a floor with an actual contract. You know, as opposed yeah, to that's my my intention. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to actually, you don't want to even have to have that. You, you'd rather just the probability hits. You don't even want to think about the floor, but you have it just in case. The, these, you know, if your total return, your view of the four percent rule is, yeah, that is my floor. That is my bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that is my safety margin. That four percent is my safety margin. It's just that the explicit assumption of the four percent rule is that in the worst case scenario you will hit zero after a 30-year retirement period. And that's the, the only idea there is, well, if you don't want to necessarily assume you're going to hit zero at the end of 30 years, you might need to build in an additional safety margin. And if, if so, that would suggest a lower withdrawal rate. Okay. And you said 30 years. That kind of is a nice segue to the final, yeah. dare I say, the yeah, final uh, point of why the 4% rule may be too high. Right, right. Yeah, that was a good segue. So, <laughs> look at that. You're the natural. You're natural. Assumes <laughs> a 30 year retirement. <laughs> and if you're thinking that your retirement planning horizon might be more than 30 years, there's no 4% rule for that. Now, this is an important issue because within the FIRE community, the financial independence retire early community, I get a sense that a lot of members of the FIRE community are total return oriented and they love the 4% rule. What is the FIRE community for the folks that... I just said the financial independence retire early. Sorry, 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 wait. (laughs) It's an online community like Mr. Money Mustache and people like that who just talk about... It's the whole idea of saving as much as possible so you can retire as early as possible. And, and therefore, you're going to 30 years will not be an appropriate planning horizon. If you're retiring when you're 40 years old, assuming you're in decent health, well, 40 year olds today, they may be <laughs> the odds of living to 100 are, are not at all insignificant. Like they may be looking at a 60 year planning horizon. And, and so the 4% rule was never designed to uh, be for a 60 year planning horizon, it was specifically for 30 years. And going back, every, that's the first episode we had in this area was about the PMT function. As we said, it's kind of the, the core of everything. Going back to the PMT function, the longer the planning horizon, the less you're able to spend because you have to stretch the money out for longer. Yeah. And now within the, the historical data, well, Alex is going to get really upset because if you're looking at longer horizons, you have even fewer rolling historical periods to look at. So I, I don't even push this beyond 40 years, primarily for that reason. But the, well, over 30 years with Bill Bengen's assumptions, except for you take distributions at the start of each year instead of the end of each year, 30 years was, ex- for a 50-50 portfolio, 4.03%. A 40-year planning horizon, that number falls to 3.71%. And, and, and if the- you keep going out to infinity... Uh, well, we don't have the historical data to do that, but it seems like with the way the trajectory of the the chart goes, maybe like three and a half percent would be the sort of what the U.S. historical data would imply. And now overlay that with tax implications. 
and it, it it gets interesting. And the reason I I actually asked you to 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 re, to kind of talk about the fire community is you you explained it, but it it's almost like this it's it's this huge huge following, and we many of our listeners may may be in that community, and and it's one of these that that's where I think it's it's a little off and maybe you know folks are upset that i say something like that but yeah if you're retiring at 40 years old you know god bless you congratulations there's nothing wrong with that but if you're applying a four percent sustainable withdrawal rate to that now you're looking at you know a 50-year time horizon and uh, if you go for, if, if the four percent rule is reduced to from four percent at 30 years to 3.7 at 40 you know, you, you've effectively now have a, you know, a 50 year time horizon, you know, continue, continue the further reduction. And it gets real tough, you know, if you're doing that. And the only thing, Wade, I would say with the fire community, which I don't want to, you know, get into, I'll just say one, you know, kind of drive by comment is, is the whole human capital thing. I think there's so much human capital left to mine. You know, you may be better off just doing something you love doing as opposed to the job. So you can continue to mine human capital and, you know, enjoy life, but also, you know, it's kind of an investment return in and of itself, your own personal yield that you kind of ignore. But that's that's another topic. <laughs> uh, so talking about themes from today's episode, too, we, we talked about RMDs because of the tax implications. But it's probably worth talking a bit more about the IRS required minimum distribution tables in the sense of how they relate to some of the, the historical safe max numbers. So if you, for your own uh, IRA account, required minimum distributions begin at age 72, but if you inherit an IRA, you may have required minimum distributions at a much younger age. So the IRS does publish tables that allow you to figure out what those numbers would be for, for younger ages as well. And, and, well, later on, uh, actually, as part of the next story arc of why the 4% rule might be too low, variable spending or flexible spending strategies will be a big part of that. And from that family, just an example of that is guide your spending based on what the required minimum distribution percentage is for that particular age. Now, what we see with the safe max numbers is they tend to be, at younger ages, they tend to be higher than the RMD rates. But at around age 80, you get a crossover where the RMD rate published by the IRS is about the same as what the safe max would be for an 80-year-old who's planning to age 100, or so, in other words, for a 20-year uh, safe max number. And wait, I, I want to set that up just a hair. I want to add a couple of points of context. And, and again, this is for folks that are, are listening to this. But I think merit some consideration from an RMD standpoint. Theoretically, what the government is saying, you know, to to why is the government requiring me all of a sudden to pay required minimum distributions? Remember, you haven't paid taxes on on this money. You, in fact, they've kind of quote unquote lent it to you conceptually, so you can just invest and have greater nominal value compounding. Right at a certain point, they do want those taxes, and so at seventy two, barring changes in legislation or what have you. They figure, well, you're going to live this long, and so if they're going to, if you're going to live this long, I'm going to take a proportionate amount every year. So by the time you pass, I've effectively collected all the taxes I've been due. So the government is actually doing a calculation for you, 
just for this specific account in which they're they're taking what they feel is a reasonable amount. So by the time you were to pass, they've collected on their taxes. And so way to showing how that intersects with the safe max rule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think you're doing a better job. I'm assuming a lot of information already known that you're helping to clarify, although all the hate mail can be directed at you from anyone with political leanings when you said <laughs> that the, the government is lending you money when they're not well, asking con- to pay taxes. <laughs> well, conceptually, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I get it. it. It's almost like, no, but it, it's very similar to uh, tax loss harvesting. You know, it's, it's just this kind of concept where, you, you know, you're making those contributions before taxes. Yeah, uh, trust me, I'm politically agnostic. Ta- it's tax uh, yeah, deferral. Yeah. You're deferring yeah. your taxes to a later date. Yeah. And and you as a consumer or as an individual can take advantage of that by then trying to target paying taxes at the lowest possible rate. Uh, and, and the government is letting you get away with that, so to speak. But it's to incentivize people to save for retirement. And, and I guess they're probably, for the most part, most people are not being too strategic about this issue so that they're not necessarily figuring out how to pay the least amount of lifetime taxes. But as listeners of this podcast, you will have a better sense of how you can take advantage of the rules to pay less taxes, potentially. Well, wait, I, I think with, with that, I got to start hitting my inbox since I, I, should, I should have a little folder just for retire with style comments. <laughs> but no, like there's, there's no politics involved. Look, I, I'm like I'm as agnostic yeah, no, as it gets. Yeah, yeah, we're just messing around. Politics. But yeah, and so going back to the, your takeaway from RMDs is that there's a crossover. They kind of match at the beginning. Safe Max is a little bit higher. The RMD is lower, but they kind of have that crossover in mid '80s or something like that, right? Would you say '88? Yeah, in the 80s, uh, RMDs are higher than the the safe maxes for somebody whose planning age is 100. But then by age 90, again, there's a, the crossover happens again, where the safe maxes are getting more aggressive than the RMDs at those more advanced ages. Because the, the, the RMD thing, table now goes out to like age 120. Does it? Wow. Uh, the, the only thing I would say, Wade, and this goes back to almost like retirement risks, because I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. Could you imagine being 90 years old and you're worried about, okay, what's the safe max at this year? And trying to, that's a lot of heavy lifting, I would think, at that age, especially considering cognitive decline. So mm-hmm. just, and at just age keep 90, this in mind. the RMD rate and the safe max through age 100 are both about 8%. Just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> But you could use the, the RMDs to guide retirement spending, and especially if you are part of the FIRE community, that's sort of flexible strategy that we'll talk about uh, in future episodes as well, uh, does help manage sequence of returns risk and becomes important for those longer time horizons. And you, you do see that there's a relationship. The RMD rules are designed to get you to spend your account down during your lifetime. So yeah, you know, the extrapolating the logic to retirement income. It's designed to help you spend down your assets and while you're alive, and, and so you get the most enjoyment out of retirement. Now, there are some other quirks about it. It tends to lead you to spend less when you're younger. Your spending tends to peak in your 80s and then comes back down again later on, which is not necessarily the spending pattern that most people are looking for. So you might want to modify the RMD table with how you use it, but it, it is just 
something to think about to help guide retirement spending. It's linked to the academically efficient way to spend down retirement assets is to spend spend an increasing percentage of what's left each year. So it's not constant inflation adjusted spending. It's a percent of the portfolio and it increases as you age because your remaining time horizon is getting shorter. So the RMD tables pick that up. The, the last point I'd like to make regarding RMDs, and you said earlier, but I think it bears repeating because we've had plenty of prospects that, you know, they're in McLean and we're looking at their portfolios and distribution strategies. And Wade said this, but and I, I need to say it just to make sure everyone's heard it very clearly. You don't need to spend the RMD money. You need to take it out and take the distribution, but you can easily reinvest it if need be. Just mm-hmm. It's just a hassle up. because you have to pay the taxes. But yeah, that's a, we talked about investing for income and how if you look on like a Yahoo Finance article about retirement and start reading the comments, maybe even a more popular comment is RMDs are forcing me to spend money yeah, I don't want to spend. Exactly. And that's, no, that's you have to pay taxes on it, but you you can reinvest it. It's you're not required to spend it, so to speak. You're never really required to spend money <laughs> other than <laughs> pay taxes. Uh, uh, the only time I'm required to spend money is when I take weight out to lunch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'll be looking for the highest priced item on the menu. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The iceberg lettuce wedge. <laughs> All right. Uh, Wade, are we good? Yeah, I think we've now covered reasons why the 4% rule might be too high. And that was the bad news. So in the (laughs) next episode, we'll start digging into some of the good news. Why, in spite of everything we've talked about, or it's really, you got to balance all these factors together and see what the overall balance is. But there are are a lot of reasons why the 4% rule, uh, as traditionally defined, might be too low when you start looking at some other assumptions that go into it. And, And we'll get into that in much greater depth. And I wanted to say two episodes, but we'll just have to see how that plays out, how many episodes it's going to take to work through that list. But that'll be coming up next week. We'll get started with that. All right, everyone. Take care. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results. 